Hey guys, welcome to Line by Line. This is a podcast where you can hear expository teaching from the Word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy it. God bless, and let's talk about the Bible. So Psalm 40 tonight in our study through the book of Psalms, um, the title of Psalm 40 is very, very common to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. We've seen that many times already in our study through the Psalms. And I think you could say the theme of Psalm 40 is about persevering faith, or you might say it's about a faith that waits. But in light of the messianic nature of this Psalm, then I think you could also say it's about delighting in the will of God. Uh, And of course, that's exactly what our Savior did. He delighted in doing the will of his Father. We see that in John chapter 6, verse 38. So a few themes to choose from here in this psalm, but it's definitely very messianic, and we'll see that as we get into our study. So let's read it out loud, and then we'll talk about it. Psalm 40, beginning in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it and fear, and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust, and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Verse 5, many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done. And your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know. Verse 10, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Verse 16, Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. And then verse 17, But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. So a fantastic psalm here. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a messianic Psalm, And so is Psalm 41, by the way, which we'll get to next week. And how we determine whether or not a psalm is messianic is, is, 
if they are quoted in the New Testament, either in reference to Jesus or if they are quoted directly by Jesus himself. And we see a portion of Psalm 40 here applied to Jesus in the New Testament, and a portion of Psalm 41 is actually quoted by Jesus in the New Testament. And again, we'll get to that next week. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, the writer of Hebrews applies verses 6 through 8 in Psalm 40 directly to Christ and how his death actually fulfilled the Father's will and was the ultimate and final sacrifice for the sins of all of humanity. And after the writer of Hebrews quotes David from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 here, in order to establish the fact that Jesus is the perfect and only sacrifice for our sins, not those sacrifices that had been offered up previously according to the law, no. He writes this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. He says, But that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so you read that verse and you think, okay, by that will, what will is he talking about? Well, it's the will of the Father to offer up his Son for our sins. That's God's will. So the will of God that we see Jesus delighting in in both Psalm 40 and in Hebrews 10 is in becoming the perfect sacrifice offered up in his flesh one time for the sins of the entire world, once for all, as the writer of Hebrews said it. So what a beautiful picture we have here of redemption, really, here in Psalm 40. So let's get into the study, starting in verse 1. David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. Now, the first part of this verse is, is really pretty interesting. Because most translations that I have, have read anyway will say, I waited patiently. That's how they translate this. But in the original Hebrew, the words that were used here by David for waited and patiently are the exact same word. Okay, it's the Hebrew verb kava. And so it literally reads like this, I waited, waited for the Lord. That's how verse 1 starts. And I like what Tim Keller says about this. He says, the doubling of a term in Hebrew conveys intensification and magnitude, and that's exactly right. Much like I've said many times before in here, anytime you see repetition in Scripture, it's there for emphasis or to strengthen the point, you might say. So in this case here, in verse 1, David is saying, be intentional in your waiting. Okay, but honestly, I think it's even more than that. Okay, because the definition of the Hebrew word kavah, it means to wait Yes, but it means also to look for. It means to hope and to expect. So when we're waiting on the Lord here, like David is saying to do in verse 1, we're not to just lay around the house in our PJs, right? What we're really supposed to be doing is staying busy in service to God and in service to others while at the same time being on the lookout for Jesus, hoping in Him and doing so with great expectation. I mean, this changes the whole perspective really on what it means to wait. And I think we can call this faith. It's that persevering faith that I talked about earlier. This is a faith that actually works according to James. Faith without works is dead, he said in James chapter 2 verse 20. Or the way Martin Luther said it is we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. And he's exactly right. But how is that? How is that true? Well, it's because real faith brings something with it. Real faith brings with it service. It brings with it hope and a great expectation in our God. So the kind of waiting that we're to employ as Christians here, it requires serving, 
It requires hoping, it requires expecting, and it requires a great deal of faith. David said, I waited, waited for the Lord. In other words, I waited intently. I waited on purpose. I waited with hope, and I waited expectantly while, all the while, I was on the lookout for the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, waiting on the Lord, it doesn't mean that we just put our life in neutral, that everything gets put on hold, and we just kind of sit on idle until we have our answer from God. No, waiting on the Lord is actually an exercise in faith. Are you intent while you're waiting? Do you wait with a purpose? Are you waiting in hope? Are you expecting something from God while you wait? What are you looking for? So do you believe that God is going to hear you? Do you believe that God will come through? Is that how you're waiting? I mean, look at the result of David's faithful waiting here. He said that he inclined to me, meaning God inclined to me, and he heard my cry. So amen. Because the word for inclined here in the Hebrew is the word nata, and it means to stretch out. It means to extend or to turn or bend or even bow. Okay? So you see, God, here's the deal. Here's what we learned. God will come and get you. God will come after you. You don't have to worry about finding him. You just wait in faith because he hears you. And he will stretch out to you. He will extend his arms and bend down to pick you up out of whatever situation that you find yourself in. He did it for David, and he did it for Jesus, and he will do it for you. Verse 2, he also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. So when God does show up, okay, when he does bend down to rescue you in your waiting... He will pull you out of whatever pit that you're in and set your feet upon a rock and establish your steps. Notice that God does this. God does all of that. You do the waiting. You do the praying and the hoping and believing, looking, expecting, etc., etc. God will do the lifting. Okay, God will lift you up out of the miry clay. And it's God who sets our feet on a solid foundation and establishes our steps. I mean, our best efforts are probably what got us in that horrible situation to begin with. Okay. It's likely. Now that's how I would apply all of this so far to us. That's our context. Okay. But again, this is a messianic Psalm. So as we think of this Psalm with Christ in view, I think we can see the cross here. Better yet, I think we could see the resurrection here, but David compares Christ's death to a horrible pit or miry clay. What's that? That's our sin. Okay? So Christian, don't ever take sin lightly. Sin is horrible. Okay? Sin will stick to you like miry clay. But here, we actually see God bending down to pick up his son from the grave that was caused by our sin and resurrecting him from the dead. Praise the Lord. And because he lives, we can now also have new life in Christ. Verse 3, he has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Now, I've used this verse right here specifically many, many times to prove the necessity and the purpose of singing new songs in church. Okay? We need new songs in church. I mean, we're going to be singing new songs in heaven. So we need them in the church. I mean, if God put a new song in David's mouth, why can't he put a new song 
in hours. Okay, and he can. But I want you to notice the reason that God does this. There's a reason, and it's twofold. Okay, the reason God put this new song in David's mouth is one, so that he will praise God. Two, is to be a witness to the world. Did you see that? David said, many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. That's amazing. This tells us that our worship is also a witness. Okay? J. Vernon McGee writes, this is a song of redemption. And he's exactly right. This is about Jesus. This is a gospel song that he's put in David's heart, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And many who hear this song and believe in the gospel will be saved. I mean, I love this. So this is why it's so important to sing truth when we worship. Whether we're singing an old song or a new song, it doesn't matter. We need to ask ourselves something very important. We need to ask ourselves, does this song that I'm singing have gospel truth in it? Because if it does, then it's a song of redemption, just like the one we're reading tonight, which means that it will fulfill the twofold purpose that it was intended to fulfill. God will receive praise from it, and many will see it in fear and trust in the Lord. That's why we sing truth. But notice, God is the one who put this song in David's mouth, right? David is singing God's song here. I think too many new songs today come from mouths that aren't necessarily seeking the right things, okay? Other, we need to be telling the great story of redemption in the songs that we sing, okay? We need to sing gospel true songs, just like we have recorded here in Scripture. So it's important to remember, though, that God is the source of these songs, and God is the object of these songs. He gives them, and he receives the praise from them. Verse 4, blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Okay, so who is a better example of these things right here than our Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, no one was more blessed by his father because no one had more trust in his father than Christ did. Now, we know that God is no respecter of persons, right? We see that in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. But look here, he certainly does not respect the proud, yeah, God has no respecter of persons, but he has no respect for the proud. And you'll remember from our study in Psalm 31 that David said this. He said, Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. That's Psalm chapter 31, verse 23. So Christ, in fact, does not respect the proud person. He repays them. That's a big, big difference. And of course, our Lord never once turned aside to lies. In fact, he himself is the essence of truth. John 14, 6 tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So again, as we look into this psalm, Christ is our model here. Okay, and our response to this truth that we find should be to please God rather than, than to please man. If we want to be blessed, then we're going to make the Lord our trust. And we're going to stop wasting our time with the pride and the lies of those who don't even deserve our respect. It's okay to not respect proud people. Matthew Henry said this. He said, where God has given steadfast hope, he expects there should be a steady, regular walk and conduct. So, amen. I agree. This trust that we put in our Lord results in blessing, but it also should result in a steady and regular walk 
in conduct. Verse 5. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you've done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they're more than can be numbered. And I just love this verse. Verse 5 is very beautiful, I think, because David is praising God for all of his wonderful works. Again, too many to count, but I'm, I'm thinking about his creation. You know, as I read through this verse, that's a wonderful work of God. I mean, God made something from nothing. What about his miracles? Those are wonderful works. I mean, parting the Red Sea, Exodus 14, 21. How about the floating axe head in 2 Kings 6, 6? Or the sun standing still in the middle of the sky, Joshua 10, 13? Just to name a few of the miracles that David could be pondering, right? Not to mention the countless, countless miracles that Jesus himself performed while he was here on earth. And of course, we have God's greatest work of all, which is, of course, redemption. The greatest work of God is redemption through his son. I mean, the works of God are incredibly wonderful, and they should cause praise to just spring up from our own hearts as well. But what about this reality here? I don't want to read past it either. God thinks about us. Did you see that? David mentions that. Have you ever thought about God thinking about you? That's a humbling thought. I mean, it's very beautiful, but it's also very, very humbling. I mean, what do you think he could possibly be thinking about? I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure, right? My guess would be, if I had to guess, God would be thinking about love. He would be thinking about compassion. He would be thinking about forgiveness, things like that. Things that aren't usually first in my mind or things that maybe express his own character. But now think of this from the Messiah's point of view, because this, again, is all about him. Okay, what do you think the father's thoughts are toward his son? I think we get a glimpse at Jesus' baptism. You'll remember Matthew said this in Matthew 3.17. He says, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So God the Father is well pleased with God the Son. And I get it. Some of you might be like me and you're thinking, I don't think God would ever think of me quite like that, right? But we, we shouldn't forget here. Okay, as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a follower of Christ, when God looks at you, he looks at you through the cleansing blood of his Son. Right? Listen to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Guys, one day God can look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant, Luke 19, 17. Why? Because your life has been hidden together in Christ, right? The true good and faithful servant, according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. So that changes how we think God might be thinking about us, doesn't it? But trust me, God's thoughts of you are loving. God's thoughts of you are compassionate and forgiving, and they are good. J. Vernon McGee says, God has revealed exactly what he thinks about us by sending his own son to die on the cross. Amen. He's exactly right. You are worth dying for in God's mind. Look at verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. 
burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Okay, so now is here we specifically get the messianic nature of this psalm because verses 6 through 8 are actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, indirect reference to Jesus. But remember last week when David, um, or when we seen David rather, gain a right perspective of his situation through prayer, we talked about that in Psalm 39, verse 4, because his own frailty is what drove him to worship God. Well, I believe something similar is happening here, okay, in that faithfully waiting on God has revealed something. It's revealed um, to David God's desire to be worshipped from a joyful and willing heart, not just legalistically by following a list of rules, for example. God's showing David something here and is waiting. David says, my ears you have opened. So David is now understanding God's desire for us to obey out of love for him, not sacrifice to him. Big difference. And of course, this was ultimately and finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was obedient unto death. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 tells us, and sacrificed his life for the sins of the world, 1 John 2, 2. But God had opened David's ears here. In other words, he's opened up his understanding to the idea of obedience over sacrifice, to the idea of love over legalism, okay? Now, something else is possible here. It's possible that David is referring to the old custom, the old Jewish custom of marking a bondservant. You've read this in in Exodus chapter 21, specifically verses 5 and 6. When David says, my ears you have opened, It could be in reference to that custom because in this custom, if a servant came to his master, for example, and said that he loved him, that he wanted to actually stay with him, not out of obligation, but because I love you, then what would happen is the master would pierce his ear with an awl on the doorpost. In other words, his ear would be opened up, so to speak. Okay, And the servant would serve his master now out of love, not out of obligation. Okay, But notice here, David makes the word plural. He says ears, okay? Now the slave, on the other hand, in this custom, would only have one ear pierced, not two. So clearly, it's possible that David was not, in fact, referring to this old custom. He may not have been, although it's very likely that he was. I mean, I think it's possible that David was metaphorically taking this a step further and saying, Lord, pierce both of my ears. In other words, take all of me, not just part of me. Okay, I like what David Guzik says. He says, it's better to regard this as David's expression of total surrender. Amen. I agree with that. And one of the reasons that I think we can say that this is at least possible that David's referring to the custom uh, is that um, of how we see this verse translated in the New Testament. So when you go over to Hebrews and you read this quote, there's something that's different about it. Okay, but it perfectly pits David as a foreshadow of Christ and his submission and sacrifice, at least prophetically anyway. For example, it's believed that the writer to the Hebrews took his text, uh, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, that he took his text from the Septuagint, okay, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So where David writes, my ears you have opened, the Septuagint says, but a body you have prepared for me. 
So there's a big difference there. Okay, so now I think we can begin to see this connection a little bit more clearly. Okay, Scripture is portraying Christ as the greater sacrifice. It's portraying Christ as the perfect sacrifice, even the final sacrifice. I mean, if David thought two ears pierced are greater than one in order to show his love and obedience to God, then how much greater is an entire body that is pierced in obedience to God for our sins? J. Vernon McGee writes, When the Lord Jesus Christ came down to this earth and went to the cross, his ear wasn't opened or pierced. He was given a body, and that body was nailed to a cross. He says, My friend, he has taken a glorified body with nail prints in it back to heaven, and he will bear those nail prints and scars throughout eternity that you and I might be presented without spot or blemish before him. You see, he did more than have his ear bored through with an awl. He gave his body to be crucified because he loved us and would not return to heaven without us. What a great quote. Praise the Lord. I mean, what a Savior we have. You see, David, he rightly understands that his service to God should be out of love for God. Because no sacrifice could take away sin until the Messiah came to take it away himself through the sacrifice of his own life for our own. So let's look back over just quickly at these verses, just to be sure that we see how they are referring to Christ, specifically in verses 6 through 8. David said this, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, and that's right, okay, but we sinned, therefore what happened? A sacrifice was now required. David said, My ears you have opened, but to Christ a body was given. David said, burnt offering and sin, uh, or excuse me, burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. And that's because obedience is what God has always desired, okay? Although none of us could obey perfectly. So David writes, then I said, behold, I come. And of course, this speaks to Christ coming in perfect obedience to his Father as a permanent sacrifice for our sin. David writes, in the scroll of the book, it's written of me. So we know that Christ came to fulfill all the words of Scripture, okay, all of them. The entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. And then David says, I delight to do your will, O my God, yet only Jesus delighted perfectly and faithfully in fulfilling the will of the Father. And David ends by saying, and your law is within my heart. So what was in the heart of Christ? The heart of the Son is to do the will of the Father, according to John chapter 5, verse 30. So Christ had the Father's will in his heart. I mean, what a beautiful picture of our Messiah we have here in this psalm. Christ accomplishing everything that we can never accomplish on our own. Christ completely and perfectly executing the will of his Father for the redemption of our souls. And on a side note here, just in case you're worried about how the writer of Hebrews took from the Greek Septuagint in order to quote, Spurgeon writes this, the Septuagint from which Paul also quoted has translated this passage. How this reading arose, it's not easy to imagine, but since apostolical authority has sanctioned the variation, we accept it as no mistake, but as an instance of various readings equally inspired. 
That's right. It's in the New Testament. The Bible is God-breathed. We accept it as truth. And more than one commentator that I read in preparing for this study believes that about two-thirds of the Old Testament quotes that we find in the New Testament are actually from the Greek Septuagint. And so I can't confirm that. I'm not sure about that. Uh, But I do know that both the Old Testaments and the New Testaments are God-breathed, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. And so I also know this just from personal study, that oftentimes the New Testament gives us commentary on the Old Testament. So it enlightens us as to what the Old Testament was saying. So in other words, all that to say you can trust what you read in both the Old and New Testaments. It's all the Word of God. Verse 9. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. So this speaks to Christ fully accomplishing his Father's will. Okay, and his sacrifice is also being fully accepted by the Father. So here's the deal. Christ is the gospel, right? David says, I have proclaimed the good news. Christ is the gospel. What does the gospel mean? Good news. Jesus Christ is the good news. Verse 10. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. So the sacrifice of Christ was public. Okay? It was not hidden. It was not concealed. In fact, it was declared. Again, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said, and no one comes to the Father except by me, John 14, 6. So his sacrifice was very public, and the truth of his salvation was very much declared. It was proclaimed. Now, this also speaks to the Christian life. This is how we can apply it to us. Our walk with Christ is very personal, yes, but our walk with Christ should also be very, very public, shouldn't it? Right? There's no such thing as a closet Christian, in other words. Verse 11. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. Okay, so of course the father did preserve his son all the way from the grief of Gethsemane to the agony of the cross. The father preserved the son. Verse 12, for innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart fails me. Now remember, and I'll be talking quite a bit more about this on Friday in our Good Friday service, but our Lord's heart melted like wax, according to Psalms twenty-two fourteen. So we can see the cross very clearly here in verse 12, because the innumerable evils that have surrounded him, well, that's our sin. But how could Christ say, my iniquities have, have overtaken me, right? Christ never sinned. Of course he didn't. Jesus could say this not because he had committed any sin, but because he had claimed them. He had claimed our sin. He who knew no sin became sin, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. So Christ stepped in between us and the wrath of the Father to claim our sin and to conquer it on our behalf. Amen. Yes, our sins overtake us. That's true. Therefore, Christ has taken our sin. Verses 13 through 15. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them 
be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. So now think about this for a minute, okay? What happened to the enemy of Christ when they sought him out when he was in the garden of Gethsemane? That's John 18, verse 6. Remember, Jesus asked them when they showed up, he said, whom are you seeking? That's John 18, 4. And they answered back, well, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, John 18, 5. Jesus looked at him and said, I am he. Then something very amazing happens in John 18, 6. The word of God says, then they drew back and fell to the ground. As soon as Jesus said, I am he. You might even say, like David does here, they were driven backward. You see, Christ was not captured, was he? No, his enemies were confused. His enemies were dishonored and confounded, just like David says here. Christ willingly drank the cup of deliverance that his father had given him, John 18 and Psalm 40. And Jesus said to Peter this, he said, Peter, put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And he most certainly did, didn't he? No one took his life from him. Christ laid it down willingly. That's John 10, 18. Verses 16 and 17. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. So I want you to notice that salvation is of God. Okay, David said your salvation here, didn't he? We cannot save ourselves. God is the saver, okay? We're only the lover of that salvation. That's important. And to love salvation means something else. It means that we actually love God, who's the only one that can save, right? Too many people want salvation, but they don't want God. That's impossible, okay? That can't happen. If you want salvation, then you need to love the God who saves and seek him, as David says, and magnify him. Of course, our example again here is the Lord Jesus Christ, because Christ magnified his father while he was on the cross. I mean, his perception of his father was magnified in the middle of his pain. It was greater than his perception of the pain and the poverty or the need that he had. Okay, and at this time, the father was thinking about the son, helping and delivering him through the torture that he was experiencing as Christ ultimately accomplished the work of fulfilling the will of his father. I mean, in that will, when he fulfilled the will of the father, that's what brought us salvation. And that's why we can rejoice today in being born again, because Christ accomplished the will of the father. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified, David said. Amen. God loves you. Okay, Christ died for you. We can say that unequivocally from Scripture. The Lord thinks about you. Amazing. And he will help you and he will deliver you. Therefore, as 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, humble yourselves 
under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting your care upon him, for he cares for you. I mean, David said, I'm poor. I'm needy. Yet the Lord thinks upon me. Wow. Think about that this week, tonight, as we move toward the cross. Think about the Lord was thinking about me. I mean, God thinks about me. Of course he does. He thought about you so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son for you. You're poor. I'm poor. We have a need, salvation. And God provided that through his son who accomplished his will perfectly on the cross. Amazing. We love you, Lord, and thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the truth that we find here. Thank you for the work of your cross. And Lord, we just humble ourselves before you and say thank you because you have done it all. We are so poor and we have such a great need. We could never, ever fulfill it on our own. But you have done that for us. And so all those who put their trust in you, all those who humble themselves before you, can know the salvation that you purchased. And we thank you for that, Lord. We can experience new life because you've purchased that for us and you offer it freely to whoever will come by faith. So, Lord, we we love you and we praise you and we thank you for these things that you've done for us. And uh, we just want to rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ tonight. Uh, Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. And so, Lord, help us to magnify you in our life above our pain, above our trials, above our pleasure, above anything that might want to take its seat on the throne of our heart other than Christ. Lord, we want to magnify you and how we live each and every day that you've given to us. So we pray that you would strengthen us to do that. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.